All right. Well, I hope you came ready to study the Bible today. Psalm number 31. Psalm number 31. Well, Psalm 31 is the third longest psalm that we have had studied thus far. Only Psalms 18 and 22 are longer than Psalm 31. By way of introduction, there are several unique literary features for Psalm 31. Number one, I have counted, uh, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five different Bible characters that have quoted from this psalm. The prophet Jeremiah alluded to Psalm 31 and verse 13. Look at what it said. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Jeremiah calls this portion of Psalm 31 to remembrance no less than six times during his book and ministry. Six times Jeremiah quotes from Psalm 31 and verse 13. Jonah, the prophet, references verse number six. Look at this. He said, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Jonah quotes that part of Psalm 31 while he is in the belly of the great whale. Stephen references Psalm 31 in Acts chapter number seven. David, who is the uh, implicated author of Psalm 71, also mentions and quotes from the very first verse of Psalm 31. And last but certainly not least, you may be familiar with this fifth verse, into your hand I commit my spirit. I know somebody and remember someone who quoted from that part of Psalm 31, and his name was Jesus Christ. Luke chapter number 23, verse 46, the Bible said, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. This psalm has both captivated and comforted many characters of Scripture. Secondly, and while many of God's saints have found great encouragement in this 31st Psalm, many modern scholars have been perplexed by it. In fact, no two modern authors agree on the way in which this Psalm is to be structured and diagrammed. But what is so fascinating about Psalm 31 is this. It is actually two prayers that follow one after another. The very first prayer is in the first eight verses, but I want to begin reading in verse number nine of Psalm 31. Will you follow along with me in your Bible, please? Psalm 31, verse nine, he said, be gracious to me. This begins the second prayer of this great song. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. 
my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many tear on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had... Said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Two prayers. Verses 1 through 8 is the first prayer. Verses 9 through 24 is the second prayer. One of the only psalms that I'm aware of that contains a double back-to-back -back prayer. The difference between the two prayers is that the second prayer that David prays beginning in verse 9 is actually longer and more intense than the first prayer. And this tells us something profound about the prayer life. It is this is that God's deliverance in our lives is doubly important. David prays not once, but twice for effectively the same thing. It's not that his first prayer wasn't good enough. It's that David felt so passionately, so deeply, so profoundly, his heart was so broken, he was so moved at whatever the circumstance and situation was in his life, that one prayer was not good enough. He had to make two. And isn't that the way it is in our lives? Have you ever got down and began to speak with God and give everything, God, that you wanted to say to him, but then all of a sudden your heart was moved all over again and your heart poured forth another prayer in the same sitting, in the same setting, and that second prayer was more intense, more profound, more passionate than the very first one that you prayed. There are some things in life that are doubly important. Important twofold. Times two. One prayer being recorded for us by the great King David is good enough for eternal scripture. But two prayers being recorded tells us something of the nature about what David is praying for. Are you willing to double up in your prayer life? David goes into his closet and he says, Lord, today I'm working double time. 
This is so important to me. There's two prayers structured one right after another back to back in this great psalm. And they intensify as you move through it. Let us join the saints of God in singing the illogical praise of Psalm 31 as we learn what is doubly important in our Christian experience. I'll say that again. Let us join the saints of God in singing the illogical praise of the 31st Psalm as we learn what is doubly important in our Christian experience. David gives more words to the roller coaster experience of living life in Christ, that roller coaster experience that he first discussed in the 30th Psalm. Remember, praising God amidst the many contrasting experiences of life. Psalm 31 is the perfect psalm to follow that 30th psalm because what David does now is give us more words to our roller coaster experience in Christ. Do you ever feel like you're on a roller coaster? Do you ever feel like that you're on a ship and as you crest one wave, you're going back down into the bow into the trough of another? And life just seems that it's filled constantly with ups and downs. And it seems as if, if you're not careful, uh, you know, whenever I was a little boy and we used to go to Six Flags. Well, y'all know what that is for you Indiana folks. But where I'm from, we have Six Flags over uh, mid-America. And uh, there was a roller coaster on there called the Screaming Eagle. Doesn't that sound fun? And what made the Screaming Eagle so, anybody ever heard of the Screaming Eagle before? Boy, you all, oh, okay, got a couple of you been around the block a couple times. And what was so cool about the Screaming Eagles, that was, it was an old wooden roller coaster. And there ain't nothing like an old wooden roller coaster. Ain't nothing scarier than feeling like you're going to come, come plumb off the track. I mean, you get on one of them old wooden roller coasters and it's clicking and a clacking and going up and down and you just wonder if you're going to make it off the other side. And one of the things about the old Screaming Eagle is it had a drop. And brother, I'm telling you, you better have a hold of your hat because if you don't, it's going to come plumb off and you're going to be scared to death. This is a, a roller coaster. I don't know if they still even have that around St. Louis, you know. And uh, it was an old-fashioned roller coaster, and people come from all around. And if you ever get into the roller coaster, there's people that do nothing but travel around and go on roller coasters. These are, I guess, like foodies, except they're coasties. And uh, all they care about is traveling from theme park to theme park, and they want to know, is it a metal roller coaster or is it a wooden one? How old is it? How historic is it? Maybe there was some famous people that rode on this roller coaster. But one of the things I remember about the old Screaming Eagle was, was the anticipation. Click, 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 And it was clicking and a clacking as you're coming up to the crest. And all of a sudden, before you know it, all you see is sky and then floor and the ground. And uh, you know, you wonder if you're going to be all right and you're holding on to that thing. And I think one time I got a concussion. I don't know. But you get off of it and you're just heads pounding and you're wondering why you did that. And then a few minutes later, you can go write it again. <laughs> but this is how life is. Life is like a roller coaster. Whether you like it that way or not and whether I agree with it or not, that's the way it is. And what this psalm does is it teaches us how to ride the roller coaster. 
One of the things that you've got to remember as you are seeking to live for the Lord in your Christian experience day by day is you've got to remember what David reminds himself of many times in this great psalm. I want you to notice with me a popular metaphor. I'll give you the outline real quickly. Roman numeral number one, a popular metaphor. Roman number number two, an illogical plea. Roman numeral number three, what is your life verse? Roman numeral number four, in God's hands. And Roman numeral number five, an illogical life. The word illogical means it just don't make sense. It just don't make sense. Sometimes life just don't make sense. Sometimes life is unfair. Sometimes life is filled with bad experiences. Sometimes in the life of some people, I think of this little boy, Joe Johnson, his life is filled with sickness more than ours is. Some people just get the short end of the stick and they're sick. They have struggles. They grow up in a life in an environment that was radically different than the life and environment that you grew up in. And what David reminds himself, and he often repeats this metaphor. A metaphor is something that is physical that communicates something that is spiritual in this sense of the psalm. Uh, a metaphor is something borrowed from everyday life that communicates a greater truth. Notice the metaphor in verses 1 through 3, said, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. In your Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead and guide me. David says that God was his refuge. Notice now with me that in verses 2 and 3, the word fortress is found twice. These are popular metaphors with David. Psalm 18, Psalm 19, Psalm 28, Psalm 31, Psalm 61, Psalm 62, and Psalm 71 all contain the metaphor or the illustration that God was David's rock. And this is important. No doubt that this illustration, this metaphor is very real in the life of David as he was running and as his life was being threatened by the evil king Saul. David had some very mighty warriors that were on his side, but he didn't have very many of them and he was outnumbered very often. And King Saul had superior military power, superior military force, and in the open plain where armies would normally wage war against one another, David and his small band were no match for the armies of King Saul. And so what happens is David and his friends, they find refuge, they find a fortress, they find a high tower in the rocks and in the caves, in the crags and crevices of the mountains of Judea. And this is important. Because I want you to notice something about this illogical plea that takes place. It's a plea, it's a prayer that just seems to not make sense on the surface. Notice what David does. He says two things about God in these passages. Notice in verse number three, he said, For you are my rock and my fortress. 
But then in verse 2, he says to God, be my rock or be a rock for me. How is it possible for David to say, be my rock and you are my rock? It would seem that it's one or the other. This seemingly doesn't make sense. I mean, you would figure it's either he's praying for God to be something or he's confessing that God is. And which one is it? This has been very perplexing. This is a seeming contradiction. How can David say you are and yet ask God to be a refuge both and at the same time? Well... I like what one said. He said, this teaches us to enjoy in experience what we know and grasp by faith. Let me break it down for you. To experience and enjoy in experience what we know and grasp by faith. In other words... It's one thing to say that David believes that God is his rock, but it's altogether a different experience when God says, God is my rock. David says that God is his rock. So let me further discuss this. We say that we believe that God is all-knowing, but when was the last time in our prayer closet did we ask God to manifest and be our all-knowing God? Lord, I know that you're all-knowing. Now, Lord, be wisdom for me in this situation. Lord, I know that you're all-powerful. Now, God, manifest your power in my life today. See, it's not good enough to just say that we believe in something. What we need is the experiential reality of what we say that we believe. I don't need just to say I believe such and such Bible doctrine or such and such thing about who God is. What I need more than anything in my life is for God to be what I know that He is. I need God to manifest Himself in a tangible way in my life daily what God claims Himself to be for me. When was the last time that we prayed, Lord, I know that you are, now be in my life today? Isn't that a wonderful prayer to pray? It's not good enough that we just know or we say we have faith that God is this or that. What we need is for God to actually transcend into our lives and be what we know him to be. It's wonderful. The experiential reality of faith. So much of Christianity is theoretical. It's sort of abstract. We've got these things that float around out here in the ethereal realm. <laughs> we say we believe this and that and so on and so forth. What we need is for our faith to move from the abstract to the concrete. From theory to reality. David had this reality in his life. How important is it that we should not simply know something is true about God in theory, but that we experience God to be that in reality? How important is that? It's doubly important. It's important to the second power. 
It's worth praying for twice in the same psalm. See, when the proverbial snot hits the fan, our doctrinal statements and what we say that we believe about God won't be good enough. What we need is to actually experience God and know God in relationship for God to manifest himself in a tangible way for theory to become reality, for abstract to become concrete. And this is what David had. That's why he says, Lord, you are my rock. Therefore, Lord, would you be my rock? Thirdly, what is your life verse? I want you to notice with me verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. When these words were originally written by David in the 31st Psalm, it was a prayer from David to God for salvation and deliverance from David's enemies. But ever since the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took up the words of Psalm 31 and verse 5 and he placed them upon his own lips as one of his dying eulogy and his dying testimony as he suffered on the cross, saints of God everywhere have also taken up these words for themselves. For example, Psalm 31 and verse 5 was the last words ever spoken by St. Bernard, John Huss, Martin Luther, Jerome of Prague, Philip Melanchthon, and many, many others. Luther himself said of Psalm 31 and verse 5, quote, Blessed are they who die not only for the Lord as martyrs, not only in the Lord as all believers, but likewise with the Lord as breathing forth their lives in these words, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Isn't that wonderful? <clears throat> the great martyr, John Huss, was condemned to be burned alive at the stake. And the bishop who conducted the ceremony ended John Huss's condemnation with the words, And now we commit thy soul to the devil. John Huss replies calmly, I commit my spirit into thy hands, Lord Jesus Christ. Unto thee I commend my spirit, which thou hast redeemed. Isn't that absolutely staggering? The final words of the great martyr and patriot, John Hust. Oftentimes, whenever I was younger, you know, they'd ask, what is your life verse? What is your life verse? And it's important that we have a life verse. For a long time, my life verse was Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's a life verse. It was for me. I think probably I might have a different one now, but for years that was the one that came to mind. And we ought to have a life verse. But this psalm asks us what is perhaps a more heart-searching question. Not what is your life verse, but what is your death verse? What is your death verse? Is it important 
that you have a life verse? Absolutely. Is it important that you have a death verse? Twofold, absolutely. All these saints who found great comfort on their deathbeds in Psalm 31 and verse 5, what essentially they were praying is they were asking God to be to them in death what they knew God to be in life. Lord, be to me in my death more than what you've been to me in my life. Yes, it's important to have a life verse, but it's doubly important to have a death verse. In God's hands. Let's look at verse 15. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. David said, my times are in your hands. In verse 5, he said, into your hand I commit my spirit. What exactly does King David mean when he said, my times are in your hands, Lord? A good question. David says, and David means, that all of his times were in God's hands. The time of David's birth was in God's hands. The time of David's youth was in God's hands. The time of David's adolescence was in God's hands. The time of David's maturity was in the hands of God. The good times of David were in God's hands. The bad times of David were in God's hands. David's good choices were in the hand of God. David's bad choices were in the hand of God. My times are in your hands, O Lord. My times are in your hands. Even in the time of our old age, even down to old age, thy saints shall prove thine own inestimable, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall to thy bosom be born. How can David pray in verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit? Because he prayed, my times are in your hand in verse number 15. Be very careful with this concept of deathbed repentance. You don't get to just live your life however you want to live it. And on, in your twilight moments as you have probably blasphemed God and misappropriated your life for your own self, live selfishly, live for the world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't put off your repentance to your deathbed because unless your times now have been in God's hands, your time of death when you come in your spirit probably won't be in God's hands. It's a very soul-searching passage of Scripture. My times are in God's hands. David had been committing his life into God's hands all along, so it's only appropriate that he would commit the most precious thing that he has into God's hands, that is his spirit, in the neediest moment of his final day on earth. How important is it that we commit all of our times into God's hands? It's doubly important. It's important twofold. 
It's worth praying about twice over and then again and again and again. Until the theory becomes reality. Until hypothesis becomes experience. Finally, an illogical life just doesn't seem like it makes sense. This doesn't seem like it makes sense, all these roller coasters. It just doesn't seem to make sense how that we can vacillate, how we can move from doubt to faith, from faith to doubt over and over again, even in one psalm. It's like a polar opposites. We move from the North Pole to the South Pole and back from strength to weakness, from weakness to strength, from up to down, from in to out. One of the reasons why we have so much trouble with the illogical nature of our life is because on the surface, our lives seem like they have some kind of logical order, don't they? I mean, the last time I checked, the sun always rises in the east and it always sets in the west. The last time I checked, in Royal Center, we have fall, winter, spring, and summer. And each one of them, they may change from time to time, if, you know, and with regard to exactly what time they begin and they end, but we usually always have them. Sometimes you get an Indian summer mixed in there, don't you? And sometimes in the spring, winter, and summer, like to duke it out and you don't know what time and season you're living in, but generally you have four seasons. And this is what makes us trying to grasp with the illogical nature of our lives so difficult. You go to work, you come home. You raise your kids, they have grandkids. You go to college, you graduate. Life seemingly has a wheel that spins, but our experience tells us something far different. Human life says something completely different than what we think it's saying. And it is that our lives are illogical very often. They just don't make sense. And in the midst of our illogical experience that just seemingly doesn't make sense, what we're called upon by God to do is trust and praise. Trust and praise. Trust, obey, and praise God in the midst of our illogical lives. That's what this great psalm is about after all. There's ups and downs, there's in and outs, and things don't make sense. But in, th in it all and through it all, David said, My times are in God's hand, therefore into thy hand, O Lord, I commit my spirit. In closing, in the year 1927, the great Mississippi River flood broke through 145 levees flooded 17 million acres of land, killed 250 people, and left another 700,000 people homeless. This was the worst flood ever recorded in the history of the United States. To commemorate this terrible tragedy, Randy Newman wrote the deeply moving song known as Louisiana. And here's the first stanza in the chorus. What has happened down here? Is the wind have changed? Clouds roll in from the north, 
and it started to rain. Rain real hard and rain for a real long time. Six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline. Louisiana, Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. The often repeated chorus in the song, they're trying to wash us away, is a reference to the indifferent response of the federal government at that time. Hundreds of thousands of people were stranded, left homeless, suffering. One could imagine the lines from the 31st Psalm on the lips of the people watching helplessly as the river, Mississippi River, rose all day and all night. They had little alternative but to say to God, into thy hands I commit my spirit. When there's six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline, you feel the need to find somewhere that is seven foot tall. <laughs> seven foot higher than Evangeline. In this psalm, God is the crag and the rock onto which people can climb for safety as the floodwaters swirl down below. Let's pray. Father, would you thank you so much? We give you praise. We offer up to you the honor and the glory that you deserve. And there is no one like you, Lord, in heaven or on earth. It's a name that's above every name. In fact, at the name of Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Father, we ask that would be true for our church here. We ask you, dear God, that you would continue to sear upon the hearts of the people the message of thy word. That we would move from theory to reality, from abstract to concrete, from hypothesis to experience. We ask all these things in faith and in your son's precious name. Amen.